I really do think that if you put your mind to something and are thoughtful and intentional about what you do and your authentic self sort of through the process, understanding that there will be major challenges and then some really beautiful moments, it's a really neat thing to do. And what I learned about myself in that process is that I'm a really entrepreneurial person. Like, I actually like the business of running a law firm as well as the practice of law. Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And this is Personal Jurisdiction. A podcast where we get personal with lawyers about their journeys before, during, and after law school. Join us for season four as our guests share their reflections on the highs and lows of how they got to where they are today. Okay, welcome back to Personal Jurisdiction. On today's episode, we welcome Kate Furlick. Kate is the managing partner at the law firm of Egal Furlick, Martinez, and Harwood in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And as an experienced litigator, Kate focuses her practice on cases involving catastrophic injury and wrongful death, sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment, equal pay for women, whistleblower actions, and civil rights. Prior to founding Egal Furlick, Martinez, and Harward in 2010, Kate was an attorney with the Legislative Council Service. She also served as general counsel for the New Mexico Economic Development Department, and she served as special counsel for litigation for the Honorable Governor Bill Richardson. Kate is a 1999 graduate of Georgetown University and a 2006 graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Law. Kate is also a commissioner on the New Mexico Commission on the Status of Women. Many, many thanks to my friend Dan Stanick for suggesting Kate for the podcast and for introducing us to Kate. And Kate, welcome to Personal Jurisdiction. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And we are just expanding our reach into New Mexico, learning more about the community where Allison has been now for the last year. So it's really fun to make another connection in New Mexico. And Kate, we start at the beginning chronologically on this podcast always. And so we'll start by chatting about why you decided to go to law school. Why I decided to go to law school. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. And spent a lot of time in Chicago, where you are now. But I was always a kid that was sort of standing up for the kid that was picked on on the playground. And sort of, I was over-involved in situations that I felt like were unjust. And often argued with my parents about whether I could have dessert or silly things like that. And so (laughs) from a young age, my parents would always say, gosh, you should be a lawyer. And I participated in mock trial in high school, coached Model UN in college, and sort of in the back of my mind, always thought I would go to law school. At Georgetown, I majored in theology and philosophy which there aren't many jobs out there for philosophers. I wish there were. And so it seemed sort of like a natural continuation of the path that I was walking. And so I went to law school. And how did you make it out to New Mexico? So I had never been to New Mexico, graduated from Georgetown, and my first job out of college 
was as a journalist for a local paper here. I was interested in journalism. I was interested in public policy. And those jobs were actually really hard to get in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I got a job at a local paper and brought my cute college boyfriend out who didn't have a <laughs> job yet and said, let's check out Santa Fe. And then I stayed. <laughs> and you've been here ever since. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's funny how many stories like that I feel like people have who end up in New Mexico. Just going back to law school for a couple minutes, can you tell us, were there any experiences you had in law school that were really formative and helped you think about the career you wanted to have going forward? Or was it more of sort of an exploratory space where you figured out, quote unquote, how to think like a lawyer, things like that? Kind of what did law school mean for you? So at the time that I was deciding where to go to law school, I was living in Santa Fe. I had applied to law schools all over the country, had no idea that New Mexico would be my home. And I met my husband as well, my husband-to-be. At the time that I was applying for law school, he works for Los Alamos National Laboratory, so he was going to be here and doing a postdoc at the time. But, you know, I applied to a number of law schools. And ultimately, because New Mexico, as you know, is affectionately called the land of enchantment, but also the land of entrapment, (laughs) I think it gets under your skin. And I decided in my 20s that I wanted to make my life here. And there's really no better place to go if you want to practice in New Mexico than the University of New Mexico. You meet a ton of people that end up staying and practicing in New Mexico. And I still, I had a conference call with a classmate of mine this morning that's on the other side of a case who I haven't Mm -hmm. talked to in a decade. And so, I mean, University of New Mexico School of Law is an incredible place. I went to a very name brand undergrad university and then law at UNM. And I loved how sort of small and intimate the law school is how much professors take an interest in what you're interested in and their willingness to help. You have access to judges to talk to them about the practice of law. And the clinical program is just top-notch. You get a little bit of experience in your third year. And so, I mean, law school has shaped everything that I have done, actually. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have to agree with you that UNM is is an (laughs) incredible place. (laughs) But I think you're pointing out something really important, which is just that, you know, sometimes there's this debate about should I go to like the top ranked law school? Should I go to a regional law school? Like, what does that decision look like? And I think for a lot of people who want to stay in a particular area and practice in that area, going to the law school that's in that place, and for you, that was New Mexico and UNM, makes a lot of sense. So I think for a lot of our listeners who are wondering, they've applied to a lot of law schools and are thinking about the decision of where they should go, thinking about where you want to end up, if you know that, it's okay if you don't too, is one of the things I think that's really important because going to a law school in the place where you want to end up can be so invaluable for exactly the reasons you're saying, Kate, those connections that you make and the community that you build that will sort of last throughout your career. For sure. And it's really been a lot of fun. I mean, I think maybe, Allison, you know this, but the legal community in New Mexico is comparatively small Mm -hmm. compared to a California bar or a New York bar. And 
in my practice, because I'm focused on plaintiff side litigation and I'm a trial lawyer, I run into the same people on the other side all the time, Mm -hmm. which I think keeps the bar more collegial than it would be otherwise and keeps people honest. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, not not a zero sum game <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, Kate, it, it sounds like in thinking about why you decided to go to law school and even the things that were important to you early on in your life, advocacy. How did you decide, or what were the experiences that led you to your first full time job in the law after graduating from UNM? In law school, so. I served on the board of the ACLU in law school and thought for a little while that I'd want to go into civil rights, which of course I ended up doing that in personal injury. But I was interested in legislative counsel service because I was like, oh, how do you draft laws? How does the legislature decide what language to use that then you go to litigate? And in retrospect, I mean, it was sort of an unusual choice. I really should have clerked, and I actually encourage all law students to go be clerks because you learn how to write, you get exposed to a ton of areas. And so I went to legislative council service just for, I think, two years. And I think actually the legislature should only hire lawyers that have practiced law first to write the laws. Because it's just an academic exercise if you've never actually applied a set of facts to the law. But it was a really interesting first step, and I loved it. From there, you went to the New Mexico Economic Development Department. Is that correct? It is, and worked for Governor Richardson as special counsel for litigation for another two years, so finished his administration And that was also really interesting work. I got very addicted to appearing in court, and which is why I made my next move into litigation. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell us just a little bit, just because I'm so curious, actually, we haven't had anyone on the podcast who has worked for a governor. So can you tell us just broad strokes, kind of like, what were you doing in that position? It sounds like you maybe got to appear in court a lot, but what did that position generally involve? It involved supervising general counsels of state agencies and then giving the governor and the administration advice on how to proceed with really specific questions. The Richardson administration was really fast-paced and had its fingers in even national issues at that point. Governor Richardson had run for president, and he was very involved in bringing sort of hostages home from various countries. And it was, yeah, it was just a really interesting time. The work was very diverse. The supervisory responsibilities were interesting because I was a very young lawyer at that point. But, you know, it was fun to dive into employment issues, separation of powers issues, all of the things that came up when I worked for the governor. Kate, you had a couple, well, a few experiences that were related to state government, kind of administrative agencies, and then you shifted to private practice. So I would love to know why you did that, how you decided to make that switch. 
I think I always was headed towards private practice and particularly plaintiff's side private practice. I always thought that I would represent individuals against corporations or government in order to shift the landscape of those places a little. So in other words, influence practice and policy within state government or with big corporations. And so I always knew that I would go there. And I had a great job with a regional firm for a little while, right out of the Richardson administration. And then my mother actually died, which made me sort of reevaluate where I was, what I was doing. And so I started my own firm with a friend from both Georgetown and UNM School of Law, who was in the state legislature, who I had worked with a lot under the Richardson administration. And he kept saying, let's open a firm, let's open a firm. And I thought, God, I can't do that. Like, how do I pay expenses? <laughs> how, how would this actually work? And then my mother died. And I really had this reevaluation period. I think the firm that I was working for at the time was not doing the type of work that I was passionate about. And so I made the leap and I have never looked back. I'm still law partners with this state legislator who then ended up becoming Speaker of the House for eight years. And so we have built a firm with 14 employees and I think love what we do, love practicing law together. And yeah, it's been great. Hallie obviously has some experience in starting a firm because she also started her own firm. But I'm curious from your perspective, like I think as you said, you know, when Hallie told me she was going to start her own firm, I was like, are you crazy? Like, how are you going to do all the administrative things? And what is that going to look like? So it sounds like you maybe had similar feelings, but then as you said, you did make the jump and obviously it's been very successful and it sounds like you've loved it. So what was the process like when you were sort of moving into starting the firm and thinking about envisioning like where it's going to go and the types of cases that you wanted to do? Because it sounds like you wanted to maybe change a little bit the type of cases that you were working on at the, at the previous firm. So what did that sort of envisioning what the firm would look like process? How did that play out for you? For about a three-month period, I devoured books on, like, how does a law firm work? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) How to start a law firm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what I did. Which is funny, like, in a how-to age. But I really do think that if you put your mind to something and are thoughtful and intentional about what you do and your authentic self sort of through the process, understanding that there will be major challenges and then some really beautiful moments. It's a really neat thing to do. And what I learned about myself in that process is that I'm a really entrepreneurial person. Like I actually like the business of running a law firm as well as the practice of law. I would like to know a little bit more, Kate, about what your vision was and kind of is for the firm. So you said your mom passing away was the impetus to make this huge change in your life and in your career. What is the vision that you had for this firm? How would it be 
maybe different from some other firms? How would it meet your kind of personal needs and your career goals? So I think that my original vision was really to be an impact law firm. So to take on cases, primarily civil rights cases, I think that would change people's lives. I mean, we all have these like big aspirational goals, I think, when we're young. And, but largely my practice has followed that track. And so I think the vision for the law firm initially was just to make it work and to do cases that we were really interested in. And we dove into some really interesting cases early on, like gay marriage in New Mexico. We were a big part of that. Felony voting rights, those kinds of cases that were really personally satisfying, but did not necessarily feed our families. And so I think along those lines, we started to develop really a contingency plaintiff's practice that I felt was really values aligned with who I was, who I wanted the firm to be, in that, again, representing individuals against corporations and government in order to ultimately, you know, first, obviously, compensate a client for something that they've been through that's been tragic in their lives or really difficult to deal with, and then on a broader scale, influencing the way that corporations behave and government behaves. Kate, I want to just take a step back for a second. Would you mind describing, you mentioned that the New Mexico legal market is a smaller market. Would you mind just describing sort of like the lay of the land here? Maybe some of the things along the lines of like, we don't have what I would call quote unquote big law in New Mexico, things like that. So just the way that like the formation of law firms and things plays out here is a little bit unique. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the the market here, would you mind just kind of giving a little bit of the lay of land of, of what it looks like? Sure. So we have a law firm with 14 people, which in any other, almost any other place in the country would be considered a very small law firm. In New Mexico, we are a medium-sized law firm. There isn't big law here, which I think does provide some opportunities for individuals that are thinking about starting their own practice after some experience with either government or in private practice, that it's a little easier to make that leap. And I think because of the small bar, I mean, people like Joe Goldberg, Allison, I know that he was law partners with your dad, provide a tremendous amount of mentorship and advice and referrals. I mean, that's the hard part about starting a law firm. How do you get your first case? And I remember Brian Egolf and I, my law partner, like literally we had our phone installed, you know, and it was pre-cell phone. And we just sat staring at one another like, well, when does it ring? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't someone going to pick up the phone? Yeah, (laughs) totally. And but for these big time lawyers in New Mexico that also have had the experience of starting their own law firm, referring cases to people that are just getting started, it would be a hard go. But people, you know, lawyers have been so lovely to us since the beginning and just thoughtful and excited for you. I mean, 
because it's a small bar, people really do not view other lawyers as like crazy competition. I mean, of mm-hmm. course, we're all sort of looking for the big impact cases or we're all looking for sort of big damages, clear liability cases. But the collegiality has just been a wonderful thing. I think you're also pointing out something really interesting, which is just like everyone starts from a place where you have no clients, right? (laughs) So it's like, you know, unless you're bringing clients from another firm or whatever, which is a different thing. But like, if you're starting from the ground up, we can look at your firm and say, wow, like you've had so many amazing successful cases and like been in such cool areas of the law, like you said, like gay marriage and felony voting rights. But like you didn't start right off the bat, you know, with with that portfolio or or book of business. So I think it's just important to remember that like if you are going to go out on your own, like everyone started from a place where they too were trying to get clients and making connections and all of those things. And so it's awesome to look at people like you who have who have had great success in doing that. But also just remember, like it's okay. You can start, you know, from <laughs> from not having clients and kind of build the practice up as well. Yeah. And I would say it's really like Kate mentioned to start building those relationships and getting to know people in your community and your practice area, because even though we practice in very different jurisdictions and practice areas, I've had the same experience where I was like, okay, cool. I have this business waiting for someone to email me. How am I going to get clients? And it really has come primarily from other attorneys who are either too busy to take something on or it's not the right fit. I think that's right. And I think sort of the secret to building a bigger and better practice with better cases is to try to be excellent in the small cases, especially, you know, always. And when you're starting out, that's particularly important would be communication with clients and then excellent work because ultimately you end up getting referrals from the clients you might have represented in small cases and you did a great job for them and you paid attention to them. I mean, as I think both of you know, lawyers, particularly litigators, are both lawyers and therapists. Yes. And so (laughs) taking the time to listen to your clients and to communicate with them about what you're doing, oh, I'm filing this motion, or the trial date is in six months, or whatever it is, I think goes a long way in building a reputation and in getting those clients to when they're talking to a friend who has a legal issue, they say, oh, call Kate Furla. She mm-hmm. was great for me or whatever. And so the excellence thing is really key. Kate, you kind of already anticipated my next question, <laughs> which is very helpful. Just kind of digging into why you think you have been such a successful plaintiff side attorney. And I would love to know if you have other advice for law students or newer lawyers who are thinking about that type of work. Communication, I would agree for all attorneys is really the key to making sure that you're able to represent your clients well and that they feel a level of trust with you. What else do you think makes or that you have developed as a successful plaintiff's attorney? Well, I certainly think striving towards excellence is great, but that often is balanced against, you know, perfect is the enemy of done or whatever the saying is. And so sometimes you are doing your best, but you have to let go and meet the deadline and just get it filed. 
So I think that's one balance. But I think the second thing is maybe authenticity, like being your authentic self and listening to your gut, like being your authentic self in court, being your authentic self with clients. And I think it, and with opposing counsel, with community members, I also think that that really helps when developing a practice because you can one, listen to your gut on whether or not this is a client that you want to take on because it's a long-term relationship, <laughs> lawyer or client. And sometimes if your gut is telling you just something isn't right or this doesn't feel like the right fit, I mean, listening to that I think is really important and keeping communication lines open with the client because you're not always going to be perfect. And I think owning something, a mistake that you made or whatever it is, is also really important to moving forward and being a good litigator. I want to dive into a few of the cases that you've done because you've been involved in such cool civil rights matters and things. So can you tell us a little bit about your involvement, your firm's involvement in gay marriage in New Mexico and kind of how that played out? Sure. Well, it was a big issue across the country where some states were starting to legalize gay marriage, either through the courts or the legislature. And I mean, New Mexico was on the early side, but probably in the teens in terms of states that ended up legalizing gay marriage. And actually, the ACLU filed a case that was going to go through a long process of a district court decision, an appellate court decision, and then eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. And we were, Brian and I, I think we're sitting around talking about the issue one day. And we looked at the marriage statute to try to maybe find a new angle to fast track the issue to the Supreme Court. And what we learned was that our statute is actually gender neutral in New Mexico. So there aren't the words husband or wife. There is a form that's codified in the statute or printed in the statute that does say husband and wife, but forms in New Mexico law, even if they're approved by the legislature, are not substantive law. So we ultimately filed a writ of mandamus. We had friends that were gay, that were interested in marriage. They went to the Santa Fe County clerk and said, we'd like a marriage license. And the county clerk said, well, no, you can't have one. You're gay. And, you know, you're two men. And so ultimately we filed something called the writ of mandamus, which is a legal tool that essentially lets you ask a public official to perform a non-discretionary duty, meaning the county clerk's responsibility is to issue marriage licenses. And when she denied the issuance of that marriage license, we ultimately filed this writ to say, no, you have to under the law. And because it was an issue of public importance, it was fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. And at that point, a lot of lawyers got involved to argue the case, which ultimately resulted in the most beautifully written decision, I think, on gay marriage in the country. 
That's so cool. I didn't actually know that it that it was like through that fast track process that that's how that came about. So that's so cool to learn. So I'm just interested because it sounds like you and your law partner, Brian, were kind of, as you said, like sitting around and then thinking about like, hey, you know, what could we do about this? So is that one of the things that's like the most fun to you about having your own firm is that you can kind of say like, hey, this is an issue that we care about, that we're passionate about. And so we have this cool tool, you know, the the legal system that we can use to potentially make a difference. Is that something that you guys often do just sort of are kind of sitting around saying like, hey, you know, can we make a difference here? I think that's potentially somewhat unique to New Mexico in the sense of like, as you said, it is a smaller market. And so, you know, you can do things like that. But I'm just curious because of the way you kind of told that story, if, if that's something that's that's common for you. And it sounds like something that's probably pretty fun if that's the case. We do. We have a team meeting every week and it's called Team W, which the W stands for win. I don't know how <laughs> it came about. Wow, makes total I love sense. It. Yeah. <laughs> and so the litigation team, the paralegals, the administrative staff, we all sit around for an hour and a half, two hours. We talk about cases that are current, what's sort of coming up in terms of troubleshooting very particular issues. Mm -hmm. But then we also on occasion are saying, you know, we'd really like to do this particular type of litigation. Like lately, we've been talking about potentially filing suit against local hotels who have known human traffickers that have women stay at these hotels and move them through New Mexico. So that's just a new idea. And so we would start to talk to nonprofits to say, hey, are you interested in potentially participating in this? And so that's sort of like impact litigation dream. Mm -hmm. And an associate named Heather brought up that idea, and I thought it was a great one. And so I hope that our associates feel free to say, hey, there's this issue out there. I think it deserves some attention in the court system. What can we do? And so usually someone comes with an idea, but it's fun to have the whole firm talk about it. I mean, I think all of the folks that work in our firm are really engaged citizens in general. We all read papers. We also all do the New York Times games, like Wordle. And of course. Selling the- <laughs> yes. We'd be lost without the games. The mini crossword. <laughs> and so sometimes Team W discussions devolve into competitions about who did what fastest or did you get the or whatever. Team W is actually Team Wordle. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That. Yes. Well, Hallie and I send each other back and forth every single day, the mini and our times. Yes. So we, yes. uh, we're in, we're in good company. <laughs> you yes. should hook me up on that. Oh, well, we're very bad at it. So improving <laughs> <laughs> slowly. Well, yes. I'm proud if I get it under a minute, but what is your record? Minus 29 seconds, which oh, is no. not that we're good. N- we're nowhere near that, Kate. We joke, we joke about it all the time, but we rarely get it under a minute. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, yeah. Allison is usually doing it around 3 a.m. when she's feeding her eight-month-old. So (laughs) she gets some grace. I have no excuse other than I just can't think of the words. 
Oh, Allison, you are in the thick of it. Yes, yes. God, it's so fun. And the balance is so hard, but it's so rewarding. Yeah, no, it is. It's so fun. But definitely tanking my my times on the game. So, you know. You got like a handicap there, like of 30 seconds. Okay, I appreciate that. In that case, I'm I'm doing great. Anyway, apart from Team W and Wordle, I would love to hear, Kate, if you have a couple of really memorable cases in your career that you would be willing to share. You mentioned the gay marriage case that was relatively early on in your firm's history, but anything that you're working on recently or or any particular Team W wins that have been memorable to you? I know our listeners would love to hear more examples. So the most recent example, I I actually feel like we have a lot of memorable cases, but most recently, and probably the most interesting case of my career was a case where the firm represented about 300 Navajo farmers and ranchers in a claim against the United States and a number of mining companies as a result of negligent acts that happened up in Silverton, Colorado, that created a very large mine spill called the Gold King Mine Spill. And some listeners may remember it happened about eight years ago. The Animus and San Juan Rivers turned like a glowing yellow. And the Navajo farmers downstream ended up stopping using the water, they lost their farms, and many of the Navajo farmers and ranchers were really nervous about farming into the future. So essentially what was already a food desert technically became more so. And so the San Juan River runs through a part of the Navajo Nation that is really the breadbasket of the Navajo Nation in terms of production of fruits and vegetables. And so farming essentially came to a halt in that area. And we filed suit about two and a half years after the Gold King Mine spill happened against these parties. And the litigation was really intense. It was consolidated in the Federal District Court of New Mexico. And we just resolved that case in January of this year. But what I loved about the litigation and was the experience that I got to have with the clients, and I got to spend a lot of time on the Navajo Nation and learn a lot about their culture, which living in New Mexico, it's certainly part of the cultural landscape, but to get to know folks individually was the honor and privilege of my career. And that case was particularly satisfying because... We took a lot of hits. Like we lost issues that I didn't Mm -hmm. think we should have lost and basically barely hung on to get Mm -hmm. the case resolved. We went up to the 10th Circuit, lost in the 10th Circuit after a very conservative judge in New Mexico had actually ruled in our favor. And then the 10th Circuit tends to be really conservative, as does the Federal District Court of New Mexico, although that is changing. But just we took a lot of hits and worked tirelessly on that case for five years. And we're just so happy that we could get those farmers and ranchers some relief at the end of the day. 
I think that's a really important thing to pick up on, though, is just that a lot of my students will come to class and say, I, I often ask them sort of in a Team W <laughs> fashion, maybe like, you know, have you had any wins this week? And in the beginning of the semester, a lot of times I get silence. And then I start to give examples of things that I would consider to be wins, which are small things that have happened, you know. And then by the end of the semester, they're often saying like, okay, yes, like I had this great conversation with this client today. And like that was considered to be a win, that type of a thing. And so I think when you are in this very long litigation battles, sort of stepping back and thinking about like, okay, I'm getting to know this amazing community of people, like maybe that's a win or kind of looking at different things that are happening throughout the life cycle of the case can be kind of important when you are, as you said, like taking a lot of hits, <laughs> which are very like obvious hits, right? When the 10th circuit is like slaps you down and says no, right? That's kind of like, okay, there's no gray area there to say like, okay, we'll see that as a win. You know, that's not, that's not really what's <laughs> happening there. But there are just like so many different things that happen throughout the life cycle of a case that I often encourage students to be able to focus on not just those like court decisions, but everything else that's kind of going into the case that is valuable to you as a lawyer in addition to the kind of tra more traditional wins. I want to come to your class. I need that information. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good way to look at yeah. the law and the practice of law. And I might adopt that for Team W. Like, what was your win? Because yeah. as a litigator... I mean, it can be a grind. Like mm -hmm. you definitely, you have wins, you have losses. Sometimes issues are really challenging. And I do think I am a glass half full person, but I think sort of taking the time to s focus on the miniature wins mm -hmm. kind of keeps you going. It's a great thing to do. Yeah. yeah. The thread that seems to run through your practice, Kate, has a lot to do with your community in New Mexico and how important it is to you to address and try to write many of the things that, you know, are challenges in that, in that community. And one of your many, many roles is commissioner for the New Mexico Commission on the Status of Women. And I'm so interested to hear about your work there and also how you were instrumental in creating, helping to create this commission. Can you share with us why you are involved in the commission and, and what your work entails? Sure. So the New Mexico Commission on the Status of Women is basically like kind of a quasi agency that looks at gender equity issues in the state. And in terms of volunteer work that I have done in the past, a lot of it has been focused on gender equity. And that's based on, you know, my own personal experience as a working mom. And also just that women in stressful situations like a pandemic, or like a workplace where your boss is making comments about your physical appearance or things like that. It's always been sort of where I put my volunteer time. And so I'm a commissioner on this body that looks specifically at gender equity issues in New Mexico and partners with nonprofits that are working in the space to try to get a handle on the most pressing needs in the community and try to improve the lives of women throughout the state. We focus on healthcare access. We focus on economic justice. And I did 
under the Richardson administration, he created the commission and then it was defunct under the next governor, who was a Republican governor, Susanna Martinez, and our governor now, Michelle Lujan Grisham, reinvigorated the commission and made appointments for women to serve on the commission from all over the state in all kinds of jobs. And it's been really interesting to sort of shape what we do next. Kate, we would love to keep chatting with you all day, but I know that you have other things to do. So we'll just move to a couple of wrap-up questions. You've already given us so much really helpful advice for law students and young lawyers, but we'll just open it up. If there's anything else that you would like to share with our listeners who are primarily students who are later in law school, as well as lawyers who are just getting their start out there in various legal markets. Sure. I think that balance is really important in life. And I don't have it very often, but I am always striving towards it. And I'm the mother of two boys, 11 and 14. And there is some flexibility for sure in private practice. But I have spent a lot of nights coming home to make dinner, feeding them dinner, helping with homework, and then I'm back to the office until midnight or one o'clock. And just finding time for family, finding sort of the Virginia Wolf, a room of her own. And for me, that sort of is my office late at night when I'm alone and I can think big thoughts and my phone isn't ringing. And and do yoga, <laughs> watch a movie. Like sometimes I come to my office after dinner just to like bust out my yoga mat, put on some music and just get some Zen time that creates, I think, you know, maybe some good mental health because I think it's a big issue for lawyers is carving mm-hmm. out enough time for joy and for family because everything feels so urgent all the time. Mm-hmm. And as the years have gone by, there are very few legal emergencies in the civil world. And that's a thing that I've really gotten much mellower about. You certainly have deadlines that you have to meet, but most things can wait until the next day as long as you're sort of diligently moving things forward. And so balance, I think, should always be the goal. Yeah, I like that. Very few legal emergencies. I I wish that was something that more people would adopt. <laughs> so agreed. Maybe Hard this with clients. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. Well, true, and we could go into a long discussion about why that is. But I think this is going to link to your answer about advice for law students and new attorneys. But I would love to hear your perspective, Kate, on what success means to you at this stage of your career? It does sort of link to my last answer. I think always doing your best, representing your clients to the best of your ability, but then also, you know, maintaining your interests. I'm a tennis player, a yogi, a skier, a mama, wife, a friend, all of those things. And success to me is to be able to be my authentic self in all of those different identities and to try to cultivate joy in all of those identities, including in being a lawyer. I mean, I think you can tell that 
I really like practicing law. <laughs> and I, I think it's important for young lawyers to try, as Allison said, to find the wins and to find the joy, because oftentimes that part is hard. But I think big picture, it's just such an honor to get to represent individuals. And I think that those relationships have sort of shaped my perspective on everything in my life. I always learn something from my clients. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been so fun to meet you and to hear about your practice in New Mexico and and get to continue to expand our network of great attorneys on the podcast across the country. So thank you for joining us today. It was really great to talk to you. Allie, Allison, thank you so much. You both are such cool women and I'm so psyched to see you doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Don't go away. There's more to come in the due diligence portion of our show. Okay, it's due diligence time for our episode with Kate Furlick. So Hallie, let's jump right into it. What stuck with you about this episode? Oh, goodness. Well, despite feeling some FOMO that I was the only one not in New Mexico during this episode, (laughs) I liked that Kate shared her idea of balance and how, you know, it may look different than someone else's idea of balance that she's not always balanced, right? It's like a a constant struggle or something that we're all constantly working on to feel like we're dedicating time to the things that are important to us. And that her idea of downtime and kind of recentering herself is in her office late at night, which would be the exact opposite of what I would do. But it's nice to hear from someone who has so much experience in her legal career and understand what works for her, how, you know, she's able to find time to herself and what that looks like. And I also really appreciated that she shared that she really enjoys being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that we hear that enough. We certainly hear that from a lot of our guests on the podcast, but I appreciate when people share that and they share that in the context of a life that is maybe sometimes chaotic or very busy, has a lot of ups and downs, a lot of wins and losses. And and Kate's still really enjoys being a lawyer. She enjoys what she does. And that was interesting to hear from her perspective. We haven't had, I don't think we've had any plaintiff's attorneys on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting to hear how her practice is different from other types of litigation that I've experienced personally or other types of litigation that we have talked to our guests about. So that was very all over the place, but those were kind of the connected (laughs) things that stuck with me from our great conversation with Kate. What about you, Allison? Yeah. So I think mine kind of connects to that as well. Just the fact that Kate was able to sort of find a space in the New Mexico legal market that has been 
so rewarding for her. I like that she touched on the fact that New Mexico is a smaller legal market Mm -hmm. and that sort of getting to know people in the market, whether that's, as she said, she had a conversation with a former law school classmate that she hadn't talked to in 10 years, you know, this morning. And so I think it's interesting just to highlight smaller legal communities that maybe don't have large law firms. Um, I think some people may look at that and think, oh, what opportunities are really there? But I mean, you heard Kate talk about all the amazing work that she's been doing and the direct impact that she's been able to make, not only because she's an amazing litigator, but also because of the type of market she's in. So Mm -hmm. for our listeners who are thinking about maybe returning home to a smaller market or thinking about going to law school in a smaller market, like there's so much value in that. And so, you know, of course, we've talked to many, many guests about the values of being in a larger market and what that looks like and the values of of big law as well. But I think there's just so much to be said about looking at a career path like the one that she has taken and really reflecting on how awesome that can be in a different legal market. Yeah, so, definitely. And of course, now that I am in New Mexico and have ter- returned to my roots, I just am really excited to hear about all the awesome things that are happening here as well. Yeah. Well, and I'll send another shout out to Dan Stanick. Dan, thank you so much for introducing us to Kate. It was really Mm -hmm. fun to speak with her. And we're so thankful for all of our friends and listeners who suggest guests for the pod. As always, if you have someone that you think would be a good fit, or if you yourself may be a good fit for the podcast, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. Those have been just so many amazing conversations we've had over our four seasons of the podcast. So with that, I will stop rambling and I will say, see you next time. See you next time. Personal Jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating so that other listeners can find our show too. Reach out to us at personaljxpod at gmail.com if you have questions, feedback, or if you'd like to join us as a guest on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.